Greetings, everyone. Blessings to you all and happy Mother's Day. And a friendly reminder to reach out to your mom today. My kids will say that I'm being a nag, but that's what moms do. We nag. It's our love language. And I also want to point out that some of the best moms I know do not have their own children, but they show up for nephews and nieces and students and colleagues. So I hope you reach out to these women in your life also. But since today is Mother's Day, and because I am a mom, I'm going to talk about my kids for a few minutes. Michael and I, we have three boys. They are now 21, 18, and 13. They're really big. Their names are Rocco, Bruno, and Giulio. I wasn't that crazy about these names at first. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But let me just summarize by saying that my husband gets all the credit and all the blame. Of course, I never call the right kid the right name anyway. Rocco, I mean Bruno, I mean Giulio, and lately Michael's name is in there too for some reason. It's maddening. But motherhood has certainly been challenging for me, especially given that I'm blind. I had to figure out little tricks to compensate, like tying bells on their shoes so I could keep track of them in the house. But I wanted to be the best mom that I could be despite my disability. And my firstborn, Rocco, was a really easy kid. He didn't cry or throw tantrums. And I thought it was all because of me. <laughs> and then Bruno was born. So much for that theory. Fun fact, Rocco and Bruno share the exact same birthday, three years apart, which they hated growing up. And it's pretty ironic because they are complete opposites. Michael used to call them Rocco and anti-Rocco. <laughs> Rocco is analytical and measured. Bruno is spontaneous and a risk taker. They once had the same homework assignment to come up with a family motto. Rocco's was do the right thing. And Bruno's was charge with like 20 exclamation marks after it. And even today, they have very different views about music, faith, politics, and man, can they argue. I think bickering is their love language. And poor Julio, who has his own strong opinions, can barely get a word in edgewise. Well, the boys also love and respect each other, most of the time. And my one prayer is that all three of them will have strong relationships with each other throughout their lifetimes, despite their differences. You know who else was really different? The 12 disciples. There isn't a lot of detail about all the disciples in the Bible, but we know enough that we can surmise that it might have been hard for some of them to get along. Take Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, for example. Tax collectors work for the Roman government, and they would overcharge their fellow Jews and keep the extra for themselves. Simon the Zealot was kind of like the anti-Matthew. They called him the Zealot because he had this fierce Jewish nationalism, and he hated the Roman Empire. He was like a political activist, revolutionary. And these two guys would have never teamed up in their natural habitat. And just like my boys, the disciples argued a lot. And maybe that's because they had such different personalities. Impetuous, overconfident Peter, who probably got on everyone's nerves, and the brothers James and John, with the nickname the Sons of Thunder, which was probably because they had anger management problems. And then there's Doubting Thomas, skeptical of his co-disciples. He didn't believe them that Jesus had risen. And of course, Judas, a traitor in their midst. Jesus certainly had his hands full to teach and train these drastically different men. I've been studying the book of John this year, and I was really struck by chapter 17. I'd never really noticed it before. The setting is the upper room, 
the night of the Passover dinner, Judas has gone to betray Jesus. And the last thing Jesus does before he leaves to the garden where he knows he'll be arrested is pray for his disciples. And this prayer does not appear in any of the other gospels. And I'm going to read a little bit for you, just a couple of verses. So listen to what he prays for. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. He's talking about the disciples here. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I find this very curious. He could have prayed for their courage or for their strength or understanding, especially given that the disciples were pretty confused about what was happening. But instead, he prays that they may be one as we are one. In other words, for their unity. For the previous three years, Jesus was the glue that held these men together. Maybe Jesus knew that the relational entropy of these men, especially after his death, would push them toward fracture and isolation rather than toward each other. And that the one thing they needed, not just to get through the next few days, but to spread the gospel and to build the church, was unity to stay together, but also to emulate the oneness of God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are three separate persons, yes, different, and yet they are one. They are in perfect unity with one another. They are aligned in their character and their mission to save us, to love us, and they work together to fulfill that mission. And this is what Jesus wants for his disciples. And this is also what he wants for us. And you don't have to take my word for it because it's right here. Check it out. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you know that you are in the Bible? How cool is that? Jesus is praying for us, for you, and for me, and he's praying for our unity also. I think this is significant and worth mulling over a while. Jesus is preparing to face an excruciating death on the cross, and yet he's thinking about us 2,000 years later. And the one thing he wants for us is unity. Why is unity so important? I think our first takeaway here is that he doesn't want us to be alone. And I totally get this as a mom who prays for her boys to stay together. We are to live out our faith in community and not in isolation. You can't have unity without community, right? And Jesus modeled this for us. He was not a one-man band. He was in community with his disciples. And the bottom line is that we need each other. But our culture, our culture values independence and self-reliance. But for many of us, this only results in loneliness. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the US Surgeon General, believes that, a, that loneliness is a silent epidemic in America today. Research shows that more than 20% of American adults suffer from loneliness, and these are pre-pandemic figures. He recently wrote a book titled, Together, Loneliness, Health, and What Happens When We Find Connection. And he writes about how when he took a closer look at personal stories of addiction, violence, depression, and anxiety, he found a similar root cause. He says, and I quote, 
it struck me that there is a much deeper pattern here, a pattern that I began to see as loneliness. We have a very human need for human connection, end quote. And he goes on to discuss how healthy human connection is directly related to physical and mental health. I love it when science catches up with what God already tells us in the scripture. Listen to this. Two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. We were designed to walk through life and faith together. Just like Jesus did life with his disciples, the Lord wants us to do life in community with other Christ followers. There are so many benefits to community, but especially when we need help. Because when we help each other, our burdens become lighter. We are not bearing them alone. I think about my own cancer journey. I could not have made it through five years of treatment without the support of my Cornerstone community. Five years, guys. It was a heavy lift. You took me to hundreds of hospital visits and faithfully prayed for me. It takes the village. Whether we're dealing with a crisis, celebrating the wins, or just moving our couch, <laughs> it's better to do it together. And speaking of couches, I read this very funny article recently I wanted to share with you. It's about a fluke email that was sent by ABC Carpet, a furniture store in New York City. They had sent an email about a delay in couch deliveries to hundreds of customers from all over the country, but they used the CC function instead of the BCC function, which means all those hundreds of people could now reply all to each other. And at first there was a lot of outrage, get me off this distribution list ASAP. But then the customers began to talk to each other. They commiserated about the backorder couches. They sent photos of their pets. They agreed that the square fabric swatches from the couches made great coasters. They even set up a single woman named Zoe on a couple of blind dates. And before the emailing was over, a GoFundMe page raised $3,000 for a family in need, and they all agreed to meet each other in person one day at Zoe's wedding. A community was born. I think that this couch story demonstrates that this pandemic has left a lot of us starved for community and human connection. We've had to make do with Zoom, but it's just not the same. And I think about our re-entry into a vaccinated world, there's still a lot of uncertainty, I know. But I hope that when the time is right for each of us, we will pursue community again in earnest. It's an interesting opportunity, actually, to rebuild our community intentionally. But building a strong community takes work. And I think Jesus prayed for unity for us because he knew there would be many obstacles for us to overcome. Human nature doesn't tend toward unity, but toward disunity. Here's an obstacle. Busyness. Busyness. Relationships take time. And there are so many distractions. We all have work and family obligations, but it's easy to fill up the rest of our time with all sorts of things that are not necessarily bad things, but are maybe a little more self-focused, hobbies and activities and entertainment. And I think it's even harder out here in beautiful California because there are so many things to do all year round. I grew up in the Midwest where the sun went down in October and it did not come up until April and there was nothing due to do in between except just keep warm. And that's when we did our community building, taking turns hosting potluck dinners. Out here, it seems a little harder to sync up our calendars. But I think no matter where we live, it's easy to become self-absorbed with our personal agendas. 
But if we look to Christ's example, people always came first for him. He made time for his disciples, even after long days of teaching and healing the crowds. He invested in his community wherever he was. Maybe the pandemic has taken away a lot of this busyness for us. And we now have an opportunity to be more intentional about how we spend our time, to reprioritize community over personal pursuits. Okay, here's another one. Favoritism. Jesus was the unifier of all different types of people. We already talked about how different his disciples were. But we know that he spent time with men, women, children, different socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities, with both elite society like the Pharisees and the marginalized like the disabled and the mentally ill. And I think there is something here for us to imitate. There's nothing inherently wrong with building community with people who are similar to us. I mean, it makes sense, it's natural. Um, but I think it's easy, if we're not careful, to slip into subtle forms of favoritism. I think about Jesus and Judas. Jesus knew that Judas would be the traitor from the very beginning, and yet he treated him exactly the same as his other disciples. He even washed his feet the very night that Judas betrayed him. The Apostle Paul reminds us, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all different, yes, yet we are equally loved and valued by the Lord. And I think it brings the Lord glory when we intentionally broaden our community beyond our comfort zones. You know, when you always need a ride like me, you can't always be picky about who's gonna drive you around. And there have been some very kind people from past church families that have helped me run errands and pick up my kids. And true confession, I might not have gravitated toward them naturally. In fact, I might have even judged them, like a book by its cover. But when I took the time to really know them, they came to be some of my most precious friendships and they taught me so much. I learned about living a life of daily worship and gratitude from a friend who grew up in South America as a prostitute. I learned true hospitality, the kind that doesn't mind being interrupted from a couple with a tiny house and a giant heart for loving people. And I learned empathy and compassion from a friend who suffered from chronic depression. I can go on and on. I think it pleases the Lord when we seek out relationships with all different kinds of people. We focus on what unifies us. And if complete strangers can bond over a couch, come on, how much more can we bond over the gospel? But we can also embrace our differences and learn from each other, resulting in a richer, wider community that better reflects the kingdom of God. But it's not just about breadth. It's also about depth. Jesus wants our relationships to be meaningful, and sometimes the obstacle to meaningful relationships is a lack of vulnerability. We don't fully engage. We're not totally authentic, whether it's pride or shame or fear that drives us, or simply complacency. Or maybe we've been hurt in the past and it's hard to let people in. And many of us are really private, and, and that's okay. That's okay, but we all we all have this need at our core to be known and seen. And of course, the Lord sees us and knows us, but we need deep Christ-centered relationships with other human beings. And I would argue that this is in addition to our spouses. Women need sisters in Christ. Men need brothers. And Jesus also modeled this for us. He had 12 disciples, 
but there was an even smaller inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These three men knew Jesus more intimately. They witnessed things that the other disciples didn't see, like the glorious transfiguration of Jesus on a mountaintop. But they also witnessed the most personal and painful moments, like his anguished prayers in the garden before he was arrested. In the same way, we need to invest in a few deeper relationships, our inner circle. A friend of mine calls it the short list. The people in our lives we can call in the middle of the night, the ones that will listen, but also challenge us to grow. We give each other permission to ask the tough questions and urge one another to obey and honor the Lord. And this short list, it can develop naturally, but sometimes we need to seek it out more actively. Building strong bonds is a function of both quantity and quality. It's about investing time, right? But it's also about how we spend that time. I want to walk through uh, quickly different ways to build and strengthen community. Um, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are kind of on a loose continuum from surface to deep. And uh, you can also think of these like different fibers that are woven together to make a fabric stronger. The more fibers, the more tear resistant the fabric becomes. And they all begin with the letter S. The first is socialize. You hang out, you have meals together, you have fun together. Many of our friendships stay at this level and that's okay. But not if all of them stay here. A community that's just about having fun is not very strong. The next is share. We share together. This is when we become more, more vulnerable with each other. There's more trust. We help each other in more significant ways. And we're willing to share more about our struggles and to pray for each other. And I think it's worth noting that as Christ followers, you can go from socializing to sharing pretty quickly if the parties are willing. The next is to study God's word together, opening God's word, discussing it, helping each other apply it to our lives. It takes us to a deeper level of intimacy. Let's keep going. Serve together. Whenever we share a mission and roll up our sleeves to work toward a common goal, it brings us closer. We can serve together at church or we can simply find a need and meet that need together. Last but not least, and this is the one that you don't really wish for, we suffer together. When we walk through something really hard with others, it galvanizes the bonds like nothing else. And I'm sure this is exactly what the disciples experienced as they walked through Christ's death and resurrection. Before Michael and I moved to San Francisco, we used to live in Charleston, South Carolina, and we had a small group there. And we'd been together for a couple of years, kind of working our way through the S's, studying the Bible and serving together. And one of the couples in the group had a daughter and son-in-law with a toddler that lived in the Midwest. I'll call the young couple Tony and Jane. And their dream was to move to Charleston to be closer to family and for Tony to start a carpentry business with Jane's dad, his father-in-law. So we prayed as a group for months and months for this family, for God to open the doors. And their house in Indiana finally sold and Jane finally got a job in Charleston. And I remember all of us celebrating on our back porch. It was Memorial Day. And we were just rejoicing that the Lord had provided. Jane was leaving the next morning to pack up the house and would be back later that week for good. And Tony and his son would stay in Charleston because Tony and his father had a carpentry job to do. But a few days later, Tony had a terrible accident. He cut himself badly with some equipment, tried to drive himself to the hospital. He bled out and died on the road. 
it was horrific. We were, we were stunned. I'll never forget that night. Jane's parents were just brokenhearted, and somehow a dream had become a nightmare. And our whole group was together, taking turns holding that little boy who was asking for his mommy and daddy. Jane was on a flight back and hadn't arrived yet. We prayed together that night. We cried together. We just sat in the pain and confusion together. We truly suffered together. I still don't know why it all happened. And the Lord heals with time. Jane and her son are doing well today. But what I do know is that our group was super tight after that ordeal. And these bonds are still strong today, the ones we maintain long distance. And here's the thing about strong communities. They can survive conflict. They are relationally resilient. They can maintain unity. Our Charleston group, you know, we didn't always agree. Certain personalities clashed at times, and we had different views on politics and theology, but after Tony's death, none of that seemed to matter. We just loved each other more. Jesus prayed for our unity because he knew that there would be forces that would pull us apart, and this brings me to the obstacle of conflict. You know, the enemy is smart. United they stand, divided they fall. And this is why we have to proactively build deeper and stronger community. But when conflict does arise, and it probably will, Jesus wants us to fight, not against each other, but for unity. I mean, that's what he did for us. He united us with God, restoring the broken relationship with his own blood. And it seems like these days there's so much more to disagree on, things that are polarizing us even in our closest-knit communities, and it's just so easy to write someone off and walk away. But Jesus does not want us to walk away. And if we are Christ followers, all this unity stuff is not just a suggestion, it's a command. That same night at the Passover dinner, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus calls this a new commandment because although it's similar to the Jewish teaching that says love your neighbor as yourself, it has two distinct differences. First, we don't love each other with our own love, but with the love we receive from Christ. His love becomes the source and standard of how we love one another, to forgive, to bridge the gaps, to not repay evil with evil, to reconcile. And it might cost us something to love in this way, our pride, our comfort, our resources. But as Christ's followers, we are uniquely equipped to love in this self-sacrificing way because we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We no longer have to love with our own strength. And the second distinction is that the way we love has great purpose. As we love each other with Christ's love, we point others to Jesus. When we allow our unifying faith to outweigh our grievances against each other and choose peace and unity, we become the powerful manifestation of the invisible but loving God, the visible evidence of Christ, and it draws others to faith in him. You know... I am so grateful for those disciples. They stuck it out together. They remain unified and told the whole world about Jesus. Let's do the same. Let's do the same. So here's how I want to end our time together. Three ways 
the Lord may be calling you today to build and strengthen community. First, go deeper. Go deeper. Is there a relationship in your life that the Lord wants you to make stronger? Maybe someone for your short list to invest more time, to be more authentic. Maybe you're in a shape group that's ready to go deeper together. Second, go wider. Wider. Is the Lord leading you to someone who might be very different from you? Someone who will stretch your definition of community into new territory? Or maybe someone who simply needs your help? And finally, fight for unity. Fight for unity. Is there a relationship that God wants you to restore, to work out any differences with love and respect, and not just walk away, but to remain unified? You know, growing in the Lord is not comfortable. We have to be willing to do the hard work. Let's not be complacent and settle for the status quo. Let's keep growing together. In a few moments, the band's going to do a song, and PT will close us out. But first, let's pray. Dear Lord, you are the great unifier of humanity, the ultimate community builder. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us through your precious blood. May you be the source and strength of our love. May we remain as one with each other and with you in complete unity. Amen. Don't forget to call your mom. together strangers neighbors our blood is one children of generations of every nation of kingdom come don't let your heart be troubled
What a blessing, the common grace we share in Jesus, right? The Bible says in Psalm 133, how good it is for the brethren, for those who love the Lord to dwell together in unity. It's that common grace that we share. Jesus, the one who, well, he's the tie that binds. He gave us everything. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to love better. He wants us to learn how to live with people who are even different than us, to not be defined by our distinctives, but to be defined by what unifies us in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that love. I also wanna remind our church community, whether you're near or far, hey, this is our time of giving. Don't forget, you can give directly by sending it into our offices. You can give uh, online on the website. You can give like I do through the app, but like I always say, you know, when it comes to our tithes and offerings, it's really good for us to remember before even our resources, God wants our heart. And I think sometimes those two things are tied together more than they seem. But I always, I remind myself, I can never outgive God. And don't forget, He's so good. He's so God. And He wants us to so good. And He wants us to so God wherever we go. And my prayer on this Mother's Day is that He would keep you uh, in your spirit, in your soul in your body and in your mind. Yeah, Lord, we need that. And may he give us one more gift, the gift of relational peace. Yeah. Sometimes we can't control other people, but we can control our own heart. We can choose to give and forgive. And I always feel that when we forgive, there's a part of us that starts to live. But either way, I know the Lord wants us to, to grow in his love and to be a blesser and a healer. I do, I truly believe that. So may the Lord be with us as we make our way into this wonderful gift of a day, celebrating Mother's Day in whatever way we can, and into this week and into these coming months. Though there are many things ahead that are not always clear, we know one thing, the Lord is with us. We're not alone and we're together. That counts for something too. All right, let's do this. The Lord is with us. Here we go. <laughs> 